right, while everybody's getting settled, a couple of announcements, if I can remember them, since my uh, sheet's gone. We have the conference coming up in uh, just under three weeks, and <clears throat> make sure to let everybody know about it that you know. Uh, I know some of you have good contacts with people in other other uh, churches around the city and outside and around Texas, uh, but this is going to be some really, really good, challenging information uh, as usual. Something came up today in conversation and what I'm studying for tonight related to one of the topics that Steve Austin is going to be teaching, and I saw I sent him a packet of stuff to wade through. Um, so that should be interesting to see how he connects the dots on that. But anyway, we've got the Chafer Conference coming up in a couple of weeks, and so we need to be prepared for that. Also, the information is on the website about the Israel trip, uh, December 19th, uh, returning on the 31st, which will give us 11 days in Israel, and then a few other uh, things to prepare for. The uh, church picnic is on April the 16th. Is that right, Alan? The day after you send in your taxes, you can go relax, okay, after you pay the federal government. So that uh, those things have on your calendar, and I think that's that's it for the uh, for the announcements. On that Sunday prior to the conference, we need some men who will help uh, set up set up tables, put more chairs up, things like that. So have that on your calendar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, as usual, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that God is righteous and that when we sin, we are no longer walking in light, which is a metaphor related to righteousness, but we're walking in darkness. And to recover, we need to confess sin. So we simply, in silent prayer, admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that we have you to come to in time of need. We Know that there are folks in this congregation who are uh, facing challenges right now due to the job situation here in Houston, people who are without jobs, people who are looking for jobs, people who are concerned about how much longer they will have a job. And, Father, we pray for them. We know that you will sustain them. We know that you are in control. Nothing that happens happens outside of your permissive will and that all of these tests that come are designed to teach us to trust in you, to rely upon you, and they enable us to grow and mature in our Christian life. Father, we pray your comfort for these people as well as that you would encourage them and lift them up and that others in the body of Christ will come along alongside to encourage them. Father, thank you for the fact that we have your word and that it is truth and that we are sanctified by means of truth. And as we continue our study on the truthfulness of your word, the inerrancy and infallibility of your word, we pray that you would continue to help build a trust and confidence in our souls for what you have revealed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started in our study, and in relation to that, you might want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. 
But I thought I would just uh, briefly share a couple of things. I think a lot of folks uh, were encouraged this last week, if not surprised, when Bryce gave a report for DBM talking about how much material is going out. And one of the things that uh, he didn't mention, that through the uh, podcast, one time, I think, it, I guess in January, about the third week of January, he sent me a report for how many people had downloaded uh, different files off of the website in the first three weeks of January alone. And I counted up and added up the totals of the first about the first 20 or 25. And so the most popular, the, the, the highest was a Matthew file, which was around 12,000. And then it was first Samuel, which was 11,000 and something. And, and, uh, first Peter, which was 10,000 and something. So in the first three files, you're already up to, uh, well over, uh, 35, uh, 35,000. And as you just walked your way down, even in the first, uh, 25, uh, downloads, you were well over, Still over eight or nine thousand downloads, and the total number of downloads, if you added up the first twenty-five or so, was uh, was well uh, over three hundred thousand. And so it just goes on for pages. That's just the first twenty-five, and there were probably I don't know how many because I didn't look at the at the whole list. So there's thousands of people. That's so encouraging. In fact, at that time, the number three country. Outside the U.S., the number three country that where we had downloads was Russia. And what did you say the other night? The the top city in February outside the U.S. was Beijing. How about that? I mean, it's just it, it's just amazing. And then he sent me this file that ranks from number one down. It goes to every uh, IP address and how much each of these, where this IP address is located, and how much they've downloaded. Now, a typical file is what, Barb? A typical video? We don't do video. Okay, that's right. So the audio files are what? 10 to 12 megs. Okay, so so somebody in Blairstown, New Jersey, downloaded uh, 7.5 gigabytes. I mean, this is just in the last five months. So one person may go to um, go to the website at one time and just spend a day downloading a mass of material, and they may not show up again for another six months till they've listened to everything they downloaded the first time. So some people come and they come come back more and more often. Then we have people from places like, uh, well, there's some. Really strange places like Moosup, Connecticut. Most of you don't know where that is, but some of you do. And you probably know who those people are who are living in Moosup. Um, but we have people from Tel Aviv. We have people from Modin in Israel. Uh, three or four other sites in Israel downloaded a large amount. Uh, people in Sweden, people in um, uh, San Lucia. Uh, two or three from San Lucia, which was interesting. Uh, we, and that was number, number 54. This thing goes on to about 8,000 who are, who are downloading. Now, when you get down past about 2,500, they've only visited maybe less than 10 times. But, um, beyond, and when it's over that, it's just, it's 20, at least 2,500 or 3,000 people are making significant visits to the website and downloading uh, huge huge amounts of data. People from coming from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, various places in Africa, a few from Saudi Arabia. I always assume those are Americans who are working there and um, things of that nature. So it's just a, a tremendous outreach. It's just uh, Jamaica, uh, Eurween, Australia. No, I ever heard of that place. And there are a lot of unknowns because if you're in a small place that's not on the, much on the map, then um, uh, you're, it, it doesn't show up with a specific location. So anyway, I just thought that uh, that uh, here's one from Bushy, Lagos, Nigeria. So it just uh, all of this material streams out and goes all over. The country, and it's it's just phenomenal to see how how the Lord is is using that 
and uh, using using the internet, it is virtually another missionary missionary outreach. Okay. You should have opened your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to review you just a minute on what we've done in this whole issue of understanding inerrancy, understanding how the Word of God came to us, inspiration through God the Holy Spirit who breathes out the Word through the human writers of Scripture so that uh, God oversees or superintends or guides the writers of Scripture to record His revelation without error in the original. Now, of course, the problem is we don't have the original. I think somebody asked the question, wouldn't it be great if we had the originals? And I think that if we had the originals, uh, they would probably be pretty faded and worn out by now because the materials themselves just wouldn't last that long. And then there would be the tendency to um, idolize the uh, and worship the originals and things of that nature. So copies had to be made. And this is what happened in the process of the transmission of the text in the Old Testament. And in the intertestamental period, we know that the, what the Jews did was when they had uh, manuscripts that were wearing out or wearing thin or fading, that they copied them. And then they would, uh, after they checked them and verified that they were 100% accurate, then they would burn the one that was, that was fading. So they, that we can have pretty good idea. And when you think about how many copies, and I haven't gone into that, how many copies we have of other kinds of ancient literature, sometimes six, seven, eight hundred, or a thousand years uh, is, exists between the original writing of, let's say, Homer or Virgil and the oldest copy we have. And we may only have one copy or two copies or three copies that are dated somewhere around six, seven, eight hundred A.D., and yet these were written about four or five hundred B.C., and we think that we, we say, well, they're absolutely accurate. And that's the assumption of modern man. But that standard doesn't apply to the Bible. We get to the Bible, they're going to have a different standard. They say, well, we really aren't sure. Yeah, we have over 5,000 fragments or docu- full documents of the New Testament, more, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of times more than we have of any other ancient document. So we really can't be sure. It's just such a, an irrational, irrational double, double standard. But the issue always comes down to can we trust the Bible? How do we know we can trust the Bible? And understanding what the Bible claims for itself in terms of its own authority and its own, own accuracy. Uh, <clears throat> what we find in, in this series, we're studying First Peter, but it is our custom as we go through verse by verse, which I'm finding more and more as I have more experience and years in the ministry, that if you're not teaching verse by verse, then you really have such a problem with, with context. But as you go verse by verse, you hit certain doctrines and topics that are important in and of themselves, and sometimes they're important because of what's going on, what's trending in our world and in our culture. And so as we hit First Peter 1, 10 through 12, it's talking about revelation, talking about how God revealed through the prophets who prophesied the Old Testament, and how even they had to diligently search and uh, inquire about what it meant. So, so just because they, the word was revealed to them doesn't mean they thoroughly understood it. So that put us on the path of the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy. This is the seventh, seventh in the series. That in our definition, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of, of, of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, uh, God's complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, in the original documents, not your New King James, King James, New American Standard. Those are not inerrant, Okay. The Word of God is infallible. It's an accurate translation in many cases, but it's the original that's in, inerrant. Key passages we've looked at many times, 2 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, that biblical authority is ba- based on these doctrines, inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. Inspiration relates to the origin of the Bible. God breathed it out. 
Infallibility relates to the authority and the enduring nature of the Bible, and inerrancy relates to the accuracy. Now, I ended last time with four corollaries that are so important, people don't understand that the doctrine itself is can be rather abstract for a lot of people, but if you believe in inerrancy, you don't just pigeonhole it and say, I believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. If you believe that, it has that has certain critical implications, and these are these four corollaries. Though every word is equally infallible, not every word is equally applicable to the church-age believer. It's The Bible is written to different people at different times, and you can't read your neighbor's mail. You can't go back to the Old Testament and read your neighbor's mail and think it applies to you. It applies to Israel in their circumstance, but it's infallible and inerrant. And it has implications and application in some senses. Second corollary, if every word is breathed out by God, then it's the responsibility of the pastor teacher to investigate and exegete every word. We're to preach the entire counsel of God. This is a mandate that, that if, if, if I as a pastor teacher have the responsibility of handling this word, if I'm not getting into the original languages, to the fullest of my capability and constantly pushing myself in terms of my own study and understanding of the original languages to handle it accurately, then I am a failure as a pastor. And I would suggest that about 90% of men in pulpits today are failures as pastors because they're not in the Word like they should be. They haven't been trained. And we have too many sheep who don't want a shepherd who knows anything about his job. Third corollary, if every word is breathed out by God, then that means the Bible is totally sufficient. This means that you don't look to psychology or sociology or uh, any kind of studies on human dynamics to find your source of how you understand the Bible. And this has sadly been, been uh, on the one hand, you have so many churches and so many uh, organizations that have affirmed inerrancy on the one hand, but then they throw it away with what they do. The right thing done in the right way is right, but the right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. And so what happens is they believe the right thing, but they adopt the wrong methodology, and the wrong methodology destroys uh, the accuracy of what they believe. And we're going to see that tonight in some of the things I'm looking at. So first, Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 we've talked about. Fourth corollary, if every word of God is from, if every word is from God to us, then nothing in life is more important than learning the word of God. Reading the Word of God. I am so encouraged by the number of people who've told me that they've started reading through the Bible on their own. You don't know how many pastors that I talk to and communicate with over the course of a year who ask me questions that ultimately the reason they're having a problem, they've taught the truth, they're getting pushback from a congregation because their congregation doesn't know the Bible. They've never read the Bible. They've never heard this. They, they, most churches, most Christians in this country operate on, on, on what I call pop Christianity. Pop Christianity is things like uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. And there are a lot of Christians who think somehow that's in the Bible. They think there are a lot of things that, in the, that are in the Bible. I got a question the other day about oh, the people in my church are just every time they turn around, they're talking about pleading the blood of Jesus about this or about that. Where did this come from? What does this mean? You know, and, and, and I, and I explained, uh, a lot about it to him, and he said, you said it better than I did, but that's basically what I said in my Sunday school class the other day, and they didn't like it. Because it's part and parcel of this, this rancid, non-biblical, evangelical culture that we have, that, that, where, where people don't know the Bible anymore. And so they, 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 they've picked up this sort of cultural Christianity that's not biblical. Okay, moving on. The next thing I wanted to look at before we close out this topic is passages that are perplexing. 
challenging. These are the passages that are challenged by scholars, passages that are offered as evidence that there's contradictions in the Bible, that the Bible isn't, isn't, uh, uh, without error. So, of course, the first thing that we run into is a problem understanding Genesis chapter 1. Now, one of the things I want you to understand is that that we have a lot of people who are educated beyond all levels of credibility today, and they really don't want to believe the Bible anymore, but they can't say they don't want to believe the Bible, so they've come up with a lot of ways to reinterpret the text so that they can claim to say it's the Word of God, but it, it, it really isn't the Word of God. And so, and this is endemic in our Old Testament departments and New Testament departments at most of the, the seminaries that have been favorites over the last, uh, 50 to 75 years. This is why in the last, uh, 20 years or so you've had the development of new seminaries like Tyndale, a seminary in Fort Worth, Chafer Theological Seminary. And by the way, things are, are really improving with Chafer this year, and they continue to pray. We continue. We've seen a tremendous turnaround in our in the income, and I think that's because we really were able to get some focus. We hired a new uh, uh, executive director this, this last year, Mike Regal from Preston City Bible Church, and he's really been able to 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 focus things and to accomplish things and move things down the road. And once people understood that, then, of course, people understand we're going somewhere. And so so they've been supporting it. We still need to think about having a president, and that's going to entail waiting for the Lord to provide the funds for that. But that's going to come, and we're moving in that direction. So uh, there's also another school in North Carolina, in Charlotte, southeastern uh I think it's Southeastern Evangelical Seminary that was also founded in the 90s by Norm Geisler. Some of you who know know who Norm Geisler is, and Norm's a real, we used to call him Storm and Norman when he was uh, uh, teaching at Dallas Seminary because he understands that there are battles that you have to fight, and he's not afraid to fight them. He's probably in his 80s now, and he's still fighting the good fight for for orthodoxy and doing a uh, doing a great job, but these schools have come along because the older schools have started to fail, and we learned a little bit about that when I read the article on um, by um, um, what's his name Bob Wilkin on can we trust New Testament professors? Now he was a New Testament scholar, but we need to have an Old Testament scholar write one that says can we trust Old Testament scholars? And the answer is no, that many of them have really uh, left the field of orthodoxy. And in one of these areas we have is in the area in the area of creation. Now, the creation account is really challenged on a couple of different platforms. The problem is that if you read the text at face value, if you read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you read the first 11 chapters, then you're left with the understanding that the earth is probably no older than four to 5,000 B.C. And one of the ways you reach that conclusion isn't because of what's in Genesis 1. I often hear people say, well, you interpret Genesis 1, you're going to have to come to a young earth. I don't see numbers there. If you interpret the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, you're going to be forced to a young earth because there's no holes in those genealogies. When you have, you have two kinds of genealogies in the scripture. You have the genealogies like we have in Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one has no numbers and it may skip two or three different generations because it's giving the, the, the line, the flow of the lineage, uh, down to David and then down to Jesus. And it's not giving, uh, it's not claiming to give every person in the line. But when you get into, uh, for example, Genesis chapter 5, once you start locking in the numbers, you're left with an understanding that, that uh, this is giving you a strict chronology. When you read, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, we know that 130 years after Adam was created, I'm amazed how many people look at that and think it's after the fall. 
you had what 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 is the first one of the things you hear in the very first day in Genesis one one? At the end of day one, God said that it, it was morning and it was evening day one. At the end of the sixth day, what happened on the sixth day? God created Adam and Eve. Then there's the seventh day. How old were they on the seventh day? One day old. How old were they on the first day of the second week? They were two days old. Just chronology started on the first day, even though the sun wasn't, hadn't been created yet, there was still, there was still earthly rotation and there was evening and there was morning. So that means once the clock starts, it starts and you can count. So Adam is a hundred and, so that means they weren't in the garden more than probably 70 years at the outset, 80 years maybe. Why do I say that? Because Seth isn't born until after Cain killed Abel. Now you can think that Cain and Abel were 15, 20, 30 years old, something like that, but let's just say, because everybody lived a long time, let's say they were 30. Then that means that when, when, when Seth is born, Cain and, Cain would have been born, let's say, 20 or 30 years earlier, 80 or 90 years. So, so there really is a time limit on how long Adam and Eve could have been in the garden. No more than, um, I mean, even at the outside, probably no more than a hundred years. So that really limits it. So you can't ram, cram, and jam a lot of time into that. The Bible won't allow it. So Adam lived 130 years, begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 100 years, and he had sons and daughters. We'll come back to that in a little bit. He had sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years. So if Seth lives 105 years to begot Enosh, that is 105 years plus 130 years. That would be 235 years after Adam was created that Enosh is born. So you can you can pretty much figure out the chronology. And I had a professor in Hebrew who had done who had written his doctoral dissertation on the Table of Nations. Al Ross, who is a world class Hebrew scholar, went on to write his PhD at Cambridge on uh, uh, rabbinical studies. And Al, I asked Al one day, I said, are there any gaps in the genealogies? And he said, no. Exegetically, on the basis of what the text says in and of itself, the earth cannot be any older than about 41, 4200 B.C. at the outside, no matter what you do. But we have a problem with all this other evidence that we have from the so-called dating mechanisms. That's the problem that we have. We look at science goes out on, on the basis of empiricism, figures out what the various deterioration rates are in various systems. And those systems are called clocks. And uh, I presented the, the data on this in the, in the Genesis series. But if you look at these various clocks, they don't agree. You look at the silting at the delta of the Mississippi River, and it's going to give you one age. You look at radiometric deterioration rates, and they don't agree. They give different dates. You can look at all kinds of different uh, different uh, clocks or deterioration rates, and you come up with, with different ages. And that affects archaeology as well. So when archaeologists are dating certain things, they're looking at... Uh, stratification evidence. They're, they're also used different kinds of, uh, um, carbon dating and radiometric dating to come up with their degrees. But if their assumptions on the decay rates are wrong, then their dates are wrong. And the only thing we have to count on, and uh, that for, with certainty, if we start with an inerrancy presupposition, are the, are the numbers in scripture. And so we end up saying that the earth, that's why we say the earth is created somewhere around 4000 BC to maybe 4200 BC. There's a couple of reasons people go with different, different dates, but it's, it's close to that. It's certainly not more than, uh, five or six thousand. It's not ten thousand or a hundred thousand or three million. And you can't, uh, get around. There is a head on collision between what the Bible says and what modern science says. 
And the reason, the problem you have with any scientific basis is that there's, there's, they're assuming certain things in evidence in terms of these decay rates that may not be, be true. And that's why you have all these, all these conflicts. But when you have the scientific models that claim one age for the earth and one age for mankind and they date these various fossils a certain way because of, of uh, the fact that it's found in certain strata and they date the strata because of the fossil, it's all circular reasoning, um, that's going to set up a conflict. And so you have evangelical scholars who come along and the text forces them to a conclusion of a young earth but, oh, the massive evidence in science. We, we're just not academically respected. We go off and get our second doctorate or our first doctorate at Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Cambridge or Tübingen or Basel or Edinburgh or Aberdeen or Birmingham, and we go there and we're looked down on as these backward uh frontier evangelicals who don't know enough to come in out of the rain because they think the earth is a young earth. And so they feel uh, they feel threatened by that, and so they have to figure out ways to somehow accommodate de- uh, human viewpoint systems. And so there's there's always been this kind of conflict in the earlier 20th century and back into the 19th century after Darwinism um, after Darwinism first came out. Uh, this this was part of the rise of liberalism. And liberalism came along and, and assumed science was right. And now you'll see this, this, this thought pattern many, many times. And we see it in this and we see it in other areas. They come along and they assume science is right, so therefore the Bible must be wrong. Oh, but we can't lose Christianity. We have to save Christianity. We have to save the Bible. So they adopt a methodology that they think will will uh, save some parts of the Bible, the ethics, the morality of Christianity. But what happens is that methodology ends up destroying, being destructive of Christianity in and of itself. And we've even seen examples of that in, for example, in dispensationalism. A couple of the founders of the idea of progressive dispensationalism were professors of mine at Dallas Seminary, and I remember them saying, oh, we just can't really believe in traditional dispensationalism. There's this problem and that problem. The covenant theologians keep accusing us of this and that. We have to come up with a new method. Remember I said a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. What they're coming up with is new methods. And he said, we need a new method of hermeneutic so that we can save dispensationalism. What has it done? It's, it's, it's eroding dispensationalism. It's not saving it. It's destroying it. And, and, and progressive dispensationalism is so esoteric that most people don't teach it or don't really understand, uh, what its impact is even on eschatology. So, all this is as a result of the fact that people are depending on uh, human viewpoint to, uh, that's their presupposition, to interpret the Bible. So they've come up with some different methodology. So you have this conflict in Genesis 1, uh, in creation, and also uh, in the different details between Genesis 1-1, I mean Genesis 1, chapter 1, and Genesis chapter 2. And we'll get into that as we look at this. But there are a number of people who criticize the Bible and say, see, this obviously different accounts of creation. Genesis 1-1 to 2-4 gives us one uh, story of creation. And then Genesis chapter 2 gives us another story of creation. And they, uh, they argue that there are contradictions between the two. Now, I'm going to look at that before we're done tonight. Uh, that there are contradictions between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In fact, if I may mention a name, I would be shot down for just being mean and nasty and personal. But you would be amazed. I had a conversation about 20 years ago with uh, someone who's now a pastor in this town who's pastor of a decent church, 
And he told me 20 years ago that he couldn't resolve the conflicts between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Your mouths would drop open if I told you who it was. Anyhow, uh, that was his comment. And, and this is just buying into liberalism and listening to what, what they say. So let's give you a little background. I don't want to get in the weeds on this because this, this is, gets really technical and it kind of turns my head inside out when I'm studying it and I know it would do, it would just scramble your brain. So I'm going to try to give you just sort of a, a, a very high overview of this. Starting in the 1700s, coming out of the Enlightenment period, and remember the Enlightenment period was called the Enlightenment in contrast to the period before it, which they called the Dark Ages. Why did they call them the Dark Ages? It was a an insult. It was a pejorative term because back before... Um, Descartes, back before the beginning of the Enlightenment, everybody was stuck in the superstition of believing that the Bible was a source of truth. So the very terms Dark Ages and Enlightenment are terms that have a spiritual and theological overtone that we were in darkness until we discovered man's use of his mind independently from the authority of the Scripture. So as the Enlightenment advanced through the 1600s and into the 1700s, there was an approach to biblical study that developed that was called higher criticism or historical criticism. And I didn't make a slide on this, but there's higher criticism and lower criticism. Lower, And I don't know why they call them higher and lower. But lower criticism relates to textual criticism, which is very valid. Lower criticism is we have many copies of a, of, of a passage, and some copies have one word, some copies omit that word, other copies have a different word. So it's the study of comparing text and determining which was the original. And uh, we do that all the time, and it's a very good study, very important, and that's very valid. But higher criticism was also known as historical criticism, and historical criticism really is sort of an umbrella term for four or five different kinds of methodologies. Uh, You don't need to know those, but there's one that's called source criticism. Now, source criticism is the idea that you have to understand that the Bible uh, wasn't written by whomever it claims it was written by. I mean, that's the foundational assumption in all of these methodologies is that the Bible wasn't written by God. It was written by man. And therefore, we have to understand how these men cobbled it together. And so they came up with a view that developed through the 1700s that, uh, well, it seems like there's two different authors in Genesis. Now, if you want a more detailed discussion of this, you can go back and listen to the third uh, lesson in the Genesis series. But there, they, they came up with the idea there were two different authors. One of them favored the name Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh. So he was called because, you know, there's that interplay in, in German between a J, which is pronounced like a Y, so you have that. So it was called the, the Jehovah or the J writer. Then you had another writer, and he preferred the name Elohim for God. So you had two different sources, the J writer and the E writer. And then as they progressed, they came up with an idea. They said, you know, there's another guy. There's another theme in all of this, and that's the, the person who's really interested in the ritual and the law and all of the sacrifices, and that's the priestly writer. So you have another guy, and he's designated P. And then there was a fourth guy, and he was concerned about the law, all things legal. And he was called the Deuteronomist, uh, D. So the the theory became called the JEDP theory, and is also referred to as a documentary hypothesis. Now, for many of you, this gets really out into esoteric ideas because because you're outside of the realm of college and university. But if you've got children or grandchildren that are going to go to college or university or uh, are, are there now, they're going to be taught this. First time I ever ran into this, I was a freshman at Stephen F. Austin in a Western Civilization class, 
And the professor was teaching. This was Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was written many, many years later. It was written after the Babylonian captivity. And there were these four sources, and you had somebody who came together and edited them and cobbled it all together, and that's how we got these accounts. So God didn't reveal it. These were just these different traditions cobbled together and finally put in their final form after the 19th century. So, at, in fact, earlier when it first came out, uh, the, the uh, authors, uh, Julius Wellhausen and... Um, uh, K.H. Groff, who were the ones who formulated this theory in the 1900s, as it had as it had developed, they're the ones who really made it made it popular. Their original dates were that the J. author wrote about 850 B.C., the uh, E. writer wrote about 750 B.C., and the Deuteronomist wrote about 621 B.C., and the P. Priestly writer wrote around 570, which would be during the Babylonian captivity. So at least their initial was all, uh, their initial theory was that everything was written before the Babylonian captivity, but it wasn't long till you get in the early 20th century and the dates moved into the, uh, period after, after the, um, after the Babylonian captivity. So that Umberto Casudo, somebody you've never heard of, this brilliant rabbinical scholar, he was Italian, he wrote a really tiny book, about 90 pages, called The Dec- Documentary Hypothesis, which just decimates the whole theory. I mean, he just absolutely, because it's foolish, but he's absolutely brilliant. But people who want to uh, reject the authority of the Bible hold on to this, um, Theory, no matter what the evidence is. That professor that I had at Stephen F. Austin, I continue to, I haven't talked to him in years now, decades, but in the late 80s, I was back in Nacogdoches, and I uh, went over and had uh, had coffee with him one day, and by then I was uh, I was well-versed in all of this material, which I was not when I was a freshman in high school, and uh, he was just a committed liberal Methodist, and he wasn't going to pay attention to anything. Uh, the, the document and, and Umberto Casuto wrote this like in the 30s. And here he was teaching something as, as fact in the 70s that had been refuted by scholar after scholar, but they were conservative. Uh, and uh, and he still taught it, and it's still being taught today in the seminaries and in Western civics classes and, and liberal schools all over this country. Moses couldn't have written the Bible. And this comes out of this historical critical methodology. So Casuto writes in his, in his book that by the early 20th century says there was not a scholar who doubted that the Torah was compiled in the period of the second temple. That's after they came back from Babylon. Second temple's completed in 516. So, so this shows that in, this is before World War II. Not a single respected scholar is dating the Torah before the Babylonian captivity, not to mention even further back to Moses. And he writes, It is true that differences of opinion with regard to details were not lacking. They couldn't agree on how it happened, but they all agreed on one thing. It can't be from God, and it can't be from Moses, and it can't be from 1400 B.C. So he says, it's true the differences of opinion with regard to details were not lacking. One exegete declared this source, the earlier source, and another exegete that source. Some attributed a given section or verse to one document and some to another. See, someone will say, well, this verse here was written by the J author. No, 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 that's not right. That was written by the P author. They, they couldn't agree because there's they, they don't apply this kind of, of chopping up methodology to any other ancient document. He says some attributed, uh, he goes on, certain scholars divided a section of verse among the sources in one way and others in another way. There were those who broke down the documents themselves into different strata and others who added new sources to those already mentioned and so forth. Nevertheless, even though no two scholars held completely identical views and though these divergences of opinion betrayed a certain inner weakness in the theory as a whole, yet in regard to the basic Principles of the hypothesis, almost all the expositors were agreed. It couldn't be Moses. 
because their their presupposition is God can't communicate to man. It's an anti-supernaturalism. And then another writer, this is from Kenneth A. Kitchen in his book, Ancient Orient and the Old Testament, said, Nowhere in the Ancient Orient is there anything which is definitely known to parallel the elaborate history of fragmentary composition and conflation of Hebrew literature as the documentary hypothesis would postulate. And conversely, any attempt to apply the criteria of the documentary theorists to ancient oriental compositions that have known histories but exhibit the same literary phenomena results in manifest absurdities. The method destroys the text. A right thing done in a wrong way destroys it. It's the, you've got to do it the right way. So this is what's going on with higher criticism. Now, in the New Testament, you also have a form of higher criticism that affected gospel studies. And in gospel studies, they said Matthew, I mean, they said Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels, but there are a lot of verses that are almost identical and some that are different. And so they posited that Mark was the first one and then Luke and Matthew borrowed from him and then added other stuff. I think it's completely different from that. And then they said, no, they have an original source, and they called it Q. And so this gets in there, and it deals with certain, we're going to look at some of the contradictions when we get there, alleged contradictions in, in Scripture, the differences between Matthew and Mark and Luke in different places. But see, folks, what, what's important is this leaks out of the seminaries. Now, this gets, as I said, this, this, uh, some of you are interested in this, some of you are not. I'm trying to just hit the high points, but I, I'm, I'm showing you how important this is. Just tell you a little story. Uh, years ago now, a Tom, uh, Pam and I went on a trip to Greece and Turkey with uh, 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 Ed Heinsohn, and Tim LaHaye. And uh, Ed Heinsohn, of course, at that time was the assistant dean, assistant to the dean of Liberty University, which was Jerry Falwell. And so we had a great time on, on the trip, and Tommy had his iPod with him. This was before iPhones. And he always had his iPod earphones in, and, and whenever we're on the bus and going places, he's always listening to his iPod and Heinsohn was sitting on the bus and said, Tommy, what are you listening to all the time? He said, I'm listening to Robbie's Genesis series. <laughs> and then they got in a conversation later on, and Tommy said, you know, Robbie just gave the greatest talk about the documentary hypothesis to, to his congregation. And Heinsohn said, well, why would you want to teach your congregation that? And, and Tommy said, if pastors don't train their congregations in these areas, who's going to do it? And their kids are going to go off to school and get slaughtered in the classroom. Ed didn't have an answer to it. So that's why this is important. It has to be taught, and it should be taught from the pulpit. And the fact that it's never taught from the pulpit is one reason that 90% of kids that grow up in Sunday school classes in American evangelical churches throw away their, their Christian faith within three months of going to college. They've not given a foundation and the intellectual ammunition to handle the, the assaults when they get into the classroom. So what happens in the, as one form of historical criticism, which was source criticism, another form is called form criticism. And form criticism will break down the sections of Scripture into subsections and then it looks at these subsections like Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, those would be subsections, and it assigns to them certain literary genre. So before we ever study the text, we're really assigning it genre, and then that genre, that literary genre, determines how we interpret the text. Now, what that means is, for example, I, I t mentioned this a few times when we went through Revelation, is that there is an extra-biblical category or type of literature that mimics prophetic stuff in Daniel and uh, and some of the other uh, passages uh, are things in Ezekiel and and and, and uh, Isaiah, and so, but it's not the same. It's not prophetic literature. And uh, scholars have called it apocalyptic literature. And I remember when Andy Woods was going through his doctoral program at Dallas Seminary and was taking a hermeneutics course 
with one of the uh, one of the professors there, and it was all about genre, and you had to have the understand the genre because that determined how you interpreted it, and that's a way to avoid the literal historical grammatical interpretation of scripture, and 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 the big thing was you have to interpret Revelation as apocalyptic literature. Well, if apocalyptic literature is an extra-biblical or non-biblical category, and then you come and you impose that on the Bible, you're going to misinterpret the Bible. And this is exactly what has happened. So you have this apocalyptic genre category, you have the category of origin stories, and you have a category of legends and myths, all of which are important to what we're going to... I can see now we're not going to get into the New Testament tonight, but all of this is important because of what's happening here and now. I mean, this just isn't off in some ivory tower somewhere. So this is just the background to orient you to what's going on, that these methodologies that are not biblical are used to reinterpret the text, but the problem is the methods themselves. Okay, so... Uh, one of the things they come up with is that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are origin genre, and it's poetry. Now, much of the Old Testament is written in poetry, but that doesn't mean it's not telling history, genuine history, in a poetic format. But they assume if it's poetry, that excludes it from being historical. And what they're trying to do, folks, is to dehistoricize. There's a good word for your crossword puzzle. They are trying to dehistoricize the text. This isn't talking about history. If Genesis 1 and 2 isn't talking about real history with real people, then then you can believe it, and you can even say it's inerrant, but... It doesn't have to be true because it's it's not written in a histor as historical genre. It's written as poetry. See how they're they're trying to get around this. So they use this historical critical methodology, and they impose that uh, impose that on the text. And so they look at this and they say, well, these these are different things. So let's just look at one of the thing one of their one of the claims. The claims is that there is an inconsistency between the accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They they conflict. Genesis 1, for example, here we go. Genesis 1, you have vegetation appearing on the third day. So this is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll uh, start at the beginning of the day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, this is where it starts, the conflict, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, they come along and they say, and then that's, um, so it's evening and morning, and it's the third day. So they say, see, God creates this on the third day. He doesn't create man until the sixth day. But in Genesis 2.5, so turn over to the next page. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, we, we read, and I'm going to start in verse 4, because actually the creation story ends in verse, verse 3. Then we read, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. This is what happens to them, as I explained when we went through Genesis. When they were created, and in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So this is a summary statement. Verse 5 says, before any plant of the field... now." before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. This is describing the status before there was a man. That's what it says, before there was a man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the ground, watered the whole face of the ground, 
and the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground. It's summarizing what the conditions were on the earth before God created man. And it's talking about, it's talking about the, um, uh, the plants of the field. These were the, the plants that were, that were agricultural that needed the tilling of man. So there's two categories of vegetation. There's vegetation that God created on the third day, but he also put these seeds and other things in the ground, and then, but it was dependent upon man before it would start to produce. So in terms of uh, uh, summarizing this, Genesis 2 is designed to add detail and, add, and supplement and expand the account of the sixth day of creation that's described in Genesis chapter 1. It's not a conflict, it's an expansion and supplement, supplementation. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, the creation of mankind as both male and female is summarized. The details are given in chapter 2, but in Genesis 26 and 27, God says, let's make man in our image according to our, our, our likeness. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So that's not giving the details. It's just summarizing what happened on the sixth day. So Genesis 2.5 is describing specific vegetation that's related to cultivated vegetation that would be dependent upon the work of man in tilling the soil. Genesis 2.4, as I explained when we read, takes us back to the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain yet. So this is before the work of the third day began. Verse 4 describes details about the nature. Uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 4 describes details about the nature of the hydrological system of that period. So the sprouting of certain kinds of vegetation was retarded due to its dependence upon man's agricultural work. So there's no conflict there if you're willing to uh, take the time to understand how the text complements each other. But if your assumption is that, no, this is just man's work and so there are going to be conflicts, that's what you're going to see. Second problem that people bring up is where in the world did Cain get his wife? Cain got his wife. Who did Cain, who did Cain marry? And so we're told that Adam and Eve had two sons initially in chapter 4. They had Cain and Abel. We're not told about other brothers and sisters, but in the genealogy in chapter 5, we're told that they had other brothers and sisters. That's what I read earlier. After he begat Seth, Seth in chapter 5, verse 4, Adam had sons and daughters, and they married each other. People say, oh, that's incest. That's terrible. How in the world could God have let that happen? The reason incest is a problem is because when two people who are closely related genetically marry, then they can have offspring that have all kinds of problems. We all joke about certain parts of the country where the family trees don't fork, right? The IQs aren't very high. You know, there's one joke about a couple of people from Arkansas, I like Arkansas, who went to California after they were out there for five years, they went to a judge to get a divorce. And when they when they got a divorce, they asked the judge, well, we're, we're divorced now, we're not husband and wife, but are we still brother and sister? We have all have jo heard jokes like that, okay? But it, it's not because there's something inherently wrong with a brother and sister getting married, because that's not prohibited in Scripture until you get to the Mosaic Law. And the reason is, is that God built into Adam and Eve this huge gene pool. And until the gene pool gets spread out and minimized, it's not a problem. You have so much uh, genetic possibility between a brother and sister that's not going to cause problems. And it's not prohibited in the law until you get down to the Mosaic Law because then you've narrowed the gene pool so much that now you're going to start having a lot of, a, a lot of problems. 
Abraham was only telling a half-truth when he told uh, Abimelech that Sarah was his sister. She was his half-sister. So you have this all the way through Scripture. So this this is not a problem, and this is not uh, a, not a conflict. And it, even as you go through the early parts of Genesis, this is this is what would have happened. Okay, another example is in, uh, of of a conflict is in Numbers twenty five nine, compared to First Corinthians chapter ten, verse eight. Numbers 25.9, you might want to turn there and make some notes if you want to be able to handle this later, is talking about this, that, that prophet from the, Medi- uh, from the Mesopotamian area of, uh, of uh, what's his name, Balaam. And uh, this is the plague that follows after he tells, uh, tells them to, the Moabites to uh, allow the... Uh, um, their women to to go out and seduce the Israelites. They're, they seduce the Israelites, and they not only seduce them sexually, but it, they seduce them into the worship of Baal. And as a result of that, God brings a judgment on the Israelites. And the text in Numbers 25.9 says that 24,000 were killed in that plague. In in 1 Corinthians 10.8, when Paul is summarizing it, he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Wait a minute, there's a conflict in the Scripture. No, there isn't. The numbers 25.9 is giving a total number that is beyond what ha- the number who died in one day. Paul is saying in one day 23,000 died. But it's very possible in another day another 1,000 died. So it's not a conflict. You don't have to assume a conflict. There are ways to explain and understand the text where there's not, not a conflict. Another example of an Old Testament conflict is in 2 Samuel 24.1 in comparison with 1 Chronicles 21.1 when uh, David uh, sinned against the Lord by having a census and numbering of the people. And we're told in 2 Samuel 24.1 that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. That verse seems to indicate that God is the one instigating this. First Chronicles 21.1, talking about the same event, says, now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, this is probably very close to the same kind of situation that we have in 1 Kings chapter 22, where you have this Micaiah, this prophet that comes up to Ahab. Ahab wants justification to go into uh, uh, go into battle with Jehoshaphat against the, uh, I believe it's against the Syrians. And so all the prophets who are yes men trot out and say, yes, the Lord wants you to do this. And finally Ahab says, I just want somebody who will tell me what God really says. And so Micaiah comes out, and he uh, he's very sarcastic. He says, the Lord's going to give you victory. And Ahab says, just tell me the truth. I know that's not what God said. And so Micaiah says that he saw in the heavens all of the sons of God, that would include the demons as well, the fallen angels as well as the elect angels. And God says, who's going to go forth and be a deceiving spirit for me in the mouth of these prophets? And one of the fallen angels says, I'll go. So we see the interplay there between God's permissive and directive will there as he is bringing judgment on Israel, how God is the one who ultimately allows this deception and is using this deception to bring judgment on Israel, and the fact that it is a demon who is the one who goes and deceives. So we have the same thing that happens. God is the one who is behind it in terms of his permissive will. God uses the demons and Satan to uh, accomplish his task in teaching and instructing, just as he allowed a messenger of Saint, Satan, an angel of Satan, and literally in the text, to, um, uh, to torment Paul. So there's no conflict, no conflict here uh, whatsoever. 
even though the, and, and, and those who believe in the error of the Bible say, okay, this is the example. I want to give you one more example, and this is an interesting one. Second Chronicles 4.2 describes the laver outside the, the temple, outside the temple. In Second Chronicles 24.2 we read, then he made the sea, that is the, the labor, the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. Now if we assume an 18 inch cubit, this would be 540, five, excuse me, 540 inches. And the, and then it says that the diameter, um, which would be the diameter of 540 40 inches, and it was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Now, a 30, 30 cubits, if we multiply that uh, by pi, then uh, pi is 3.14159. If we multiply that by pi, then we come out with a circumference of 565 inches. Oh, the Bible's wrong. There's an error there. Well, the difference is that the diameter is measuring from outside to outside, and the circumference is measuring the inner uh, the inner rim, and so they are not measuring uh, the same the same thing. So this way, you have uh, you can easily uh, reconcile the two different measurements. The in, or, or let's say the inside diameter rather would be 10 cubits or 180 inches minus the two hand breadths, which is the width of it, uh, which would be eight inches. And then you come out with the, the same number on both, on both sides. So that's just an example of some different things that are brought up, uh, to point out that there are errors in the Bible. Now, next time we're going to look at, at some New Testament passages. And there's one situation that's occurring that actually has relevance for Houston, Texas, because um, the the man, the professor, who the scholar who is the cause of this enormous uproar is now at teaching at Houston Baptist University, and he is um, uh, he, the president of Houston Baptist said he's such a godly man. He defends the orthodoxy of Scripture, but he's a heretic. Uh, he, he got fired from about three different seminaries and a couple of different organizations over a period of, of two or three years because of his positions, and then Houston Baptist picked him up. So we'll look at that because that is a current situation still causing a lot of waves, and it's all related to what I talked about earlier, historical criticism. And then we're going to bring up some other things because I want to point out how some of this has infiltrated uh, we already know from some of the quotes from Wilkins' article how this has infiltrated New Testament departments. But we have to be prepared to answer these things. Peter said we have to give an answer for the hope that is that is in us. So there's a lot of tools, there are a lot of books out that deal with these issues that you can consult. Uh, I'm just sort of giving you the uh, uh, the quick version. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to be reminded that your word is accurate, that it does not contradict itself, that even though an initial superficial look at a glance at a passage may indicate a conflict or disagreement, we know that when we study it more fully and in more detail and really come to understand it, that there aren't conflicts. And even in those few cases where we're not sure, we know that it's not a problem with the text, it's just our problem of understanding uh, all of the details surrounding the text. So, Father, we pray that we might have confidence in your word that no matter what happens, we fully trust it, we believe it's sufficient, and that we rely upon you no matter what circumstances are taking place in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.